Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. I know it's been a long time, and this time it has been a pretty long amount of time. But the last month or so has been me moving my whole life across the country, graduating college, finals, and work for a job that I do on the side. I've been totally swamped, and my whole life is changing. But I'm back, and officially a college graduate. And with that, we might have to rename dorm room history because, well, I'm not in college and not even in a dorm room. So, anyway, a lot of things for us to sort out. But this can sort of be our de facto season two. And as always, remember to go check out the website at dormroomhistory.com/thehistoryofchina. Thank you to those of you who have sent me messages, and a special thank you to those who have donated this week to both me and the fundraiser a few months ago. Now, again, I do this out of love, but a couple of you guys donated this week, and if you guys want a shout out, just bump me a little message, and I will. You know, some people don't want their names on the internet, but I can't thank you enough, especially in a time like this. And remember to rate the show five stars if you love it, and to subscribe to it or follow it so you don't miss an episode. Now, where were we? Ah, yes. Last time we saw the Han Dynasty and the Shonu take the gloves off. They were just throwing haymakers. Wei Qing and then later Huo Chubing were really sticking it to the Shonu there, with Wei Qing seizing the southern markets and、um, the Ordus Loop. And then he turned north into the Gobi Desert and was going deep into Shongnu territory. On the flip side, the extremely young Huo Chubing, for his part, went out and snatched the Hexi Corridor (Hexi), a massive swath of land that opened up a whole new valuable trade route for the Han to the west. Which, yes, that will be fully linked up soon. But today, it's the battle. Of Mobei, M-O-B-E-I, one of the most insane strategical conflicts of not just the Han Shongnu War, but really of this, you know, the entire ancient world. It's quite something, and it's the closest thing to a decisive encounter we're gonna get. So, without further ado, the history of China, episode thirty-two, the Han Shongnu War, part two. When Wei Qing first moved up into the Gobi Desert, his gains were, as we know, pyrrhic at best. This front sort of dragged out for a few years because the Shongnu would just keep up and moving their capital wherever and whenever they came under threat. So Wei Qing's winning, but he's going deep, and the Shongnu were saying, "Well, we're not going to face you. Pick everything up and move." In 119 BC, however, with the Hexi Corridor cleared. And thus, Huo Chubing now able to be redeployed wherever, Emperor Wu decided it was time to create the All Star Team. He had two great players going at different places, but he was going to put all the pieces together and try and finally put the dagger into the Shongnu once and for all. Obviously, immediately promoted Wei Qing and Huo Chubing back to their generalships, because remember, it's an ad hoc thing. Each of them were given their own column, sort of to say, and get this: each column was comprised of fifty thousand cavalry and one hundred thousand infantrymen. That's just for one of the columns. There's two of them. Like what? I mean, that's a lot of troops. 
And that doesn't even include camp followers, helpers, etc. Or maybe it does. The ancient numbers, again, they're hard to go by. But, you know, there's a lot of people going up on this mission. That's all you need to know. And it's roughly a two-to-one cavalry-to-infantrymen sort of ratio. And again, I can hear you grumbling through your speakers of your car or your phone that those numbers are surely inflated. And those numbers, well, are all we have. But yes, most likely exaggerated. But even if we took just half of that, even half, just one of the columns, allegedly total size, forget the other one, it's still utterly ginormous. Oh, and to make matters more interesting, they have to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles. So the two columns were going to march north and then split, with one going towards a region out of the Dai Prefecture and the other out of the region of Dingxiang. And again, I recommend checking the maps for this one, but safe to say that they're in northern China, one more to the east and one more to the west, west central, but they're going to take off from these places, the Dai Prefecture and Dingxiang. When the two armies set off with one under Wei Qing and one under Huo Qubing, the plan was to send Wei Qing and his column from the Dai Prefecture, and Huo Qubing was to take his column out from Dingxiang. So, they get on their way. But this is where things begin to get weird. So at some point along the way, a Xiongnu prisoner of war is picked up, and that Xiongnu prisoner of war claimed to know where the Qianyu, you know, the leader of the Xiongnu, and his best forces, you know, he knew where they were. He claimed, with, you know, out much evidence, that the Qianyu and his best forces were hanging out just east of the Dai Prefecture. And here's the weird part. Emperor Wu was around to see Huo Chu Bing grow up. You know, he was sort of around as a child, watched him become the person he became. And on top of that, he was also allegedly iffy with Wei Qing, he being Emperor Wu. So maybe a weird beef with Wei Qing out of jealousy or paranoia, and maybe out of a love of Huo Chu Bing or both, Emperor Wu said, okay, Columns, I get you were already well on your way, but I'm going to need you guys to switch. So Huo Qubing and his forces switched their directions, then got to the Dai Prefecture, then had to march an extra 1,000 miles to engage the enemy. Yeah, 1,000 miles. And that's not exaggeration. The maps, you know, you can put a point and put another point on Google Maps and see, yep, that's, that's really long. That's 1,000 miles. But at the same time, Wei Qing and his forces switched their own direction. So they get to Dingxiang and start their advance. So they both left and then essentially had to take all their armies and switch with each other and then continue their marches. Again, obviously all of this is going to be on maps that will be given with this week's episode post. So bear with me. And, you know, I keep alluding to weirdness, but this is where it comes up. The Xiongnu prisoner of war got it backwards. Yeah, he was wrong. 180 degrees the wrong direction. The Chan Yu and his best forces were not off of the Dai prefecture. They were off of the Dingxiang region. So Emperor Wu had it technically right the first time. But now he was sending Huo Qubing to Dingxiang 
and then found out that the Chan Yu was where Wei Ting was going, switched the two, and the connotation for that was probably lost on no one. Everyone knew that he was giving Huo Chu Bing the best task and was essentially pushing Wei Ching off to the side. But he's wrong. Huo Chu Bing's not going to the Chan Yu. If he had been in his original place, yeah, he would have gone. But in a weird bid to get Huo Chu Bing the glory or to put Wei Ching down, he switched them, but in switching them, was sending Wei Ching to face the Chan Yu. Welp. That's not good. Huo Chu Bing, though, does not know this. No, none of them do. He knows that he was switched and he's ready to face, you know, the main army. And he's already on the march and moving the 1,000 miles to engage the enemy. Yeah, 1,000 miles. And it's, you know, just sort of a number. And it's hard to put that in perspective. But that's like walking or riding a horse from Jacksonville, Florida all the way up to Boston, or from Rome to Manchester, England. I mean, the size and scale and scope of this operation, it's hard to fathom. Feeding, equipping, transporting, and moving this gigantic military force over 15 miles would be hard, let alone a thousand. Marching north from the Dai Prefecture, Huo Chu Bing eventually made contact with the enemy. But not the Chan Yu and his best forces. Instead, Huo Chu Bing ran into the Xiongnu's worthy prince of the left's army. Remember, the Xiongnu had a prince of the left and of the right. And if you flipped your map upside down so you're facing south, you know, the way the northern Xiongnu looked down at the Han, the left would be equaling the eastern control and the right would be the western control, because they're facing down. So west would be on their right, east would be on their left. Anyway, right equals west. Left equals east. And right now, Huo Chu Bing just ran into the worthy prince of the left's army. So yes, Huo Chu Bing has his massive army, all geared up to go head-to-head -head with the cream of the Xiongnu crop, and they actually run into a massively inferior force. He took the best things from the Han army, was ready, had the best people, was mentally prepared, and shows up and faces this. Now, it's not nothing, but it's definitely not what they expected. Now, leading up to the conflict, Huo Chu Bing broke off a division to perform a flanking maneuver while he led the main force right at the enemy. And the Xiongnu put up an incredible defense. K kidding, it wasn't even close. Huo Chu Bing was prepped and ready for the best, and instead faced a wildly inferior Xiongnu force. In the battle, Huo Chu Bing's army was able to encircle the Xiongnu force, which is important because it means that this elusive enemy cannot just vanish into the vastness of the steppe to fight another day. He was literally able to fully envelop them. And with the enemy encircled, the Han forces killed upwards of 70,000 Xiongnu just under a hundred nobles and multiple lords. Huo Chu Bing, for his part, did suffer casualties, though. But these losses were nothing compared to that of the Xiongnu. Then, while all this is happening, the flanking Han detachment that Huo Chu Bing sent, well, it comes in and added some 3,000 more casualties to the Xiongnu's death list. Boom. 
Hua Chu Bing and the Han forces then hunted down any stragglers all the way into modern Siberia. Yes, Siberia at around Lake Baikal. Thorough evisceration. The clans and the tribes of the Xiongnu that Hua Chu Bing just faced were effectively now destroyed. Hua Chu Bing wiped the floor with these Xiongnu, but he and his forces were not supposed to be facing this Xiongnu force. They were supposed to be fighting the best of the Xiongnu, and now Wei Qing was marching unknowingly into that best of the Xiongnu. The little switcheroo there of Hua Chu Bing and Wei Qing's intended destinations and targets also had other consequences. I alluded to this just before, but thinking that he was about to face the larger and higher quality Xiongnu army, Hua Chu Bing got to create a sort of all-star team of the two forces. He got the best officers, the best units, the best equipment. So that left Wei Qing with a smaller force, comprised of essentially the JV team. The all-star Han army ended up facing the JV Xiongnu army, and now the JV Han army was facing the all-star Xiongnu army. It's weird. It's confusing. But to make matters worse for Wei Qing, one of his generals, Li Guang, was, according to Emperor Wu, laden with bad fortune and could jinx the whole army. So Wei Qing ended up sending Li Guang and his own forces on a mindless flanking maneuver in the step to just, you know, let him know, feel he was doing something productive, but in reality, well, he was just being sent far away as to not jinx the whole thing. A smaller force comprised of lower quality components, and now a general and some of his soldiers is being sent on a mindless flanking maneuver just to get him away from the main army? Things are not looking good for Wei Qing. Now, the Vegas odds for the Han pulling this off now are drifting fast, and I mean at every second. Oh, and this JV Han force had to march 500 miles for themselves, so they will be nice and tired to unknowingly face the larger, more elite, and well-rested Xiongnu forces of the Chan Yu himself. And remember, Wei Qing does not know this, that you know, he's being sent into the best of the best of the enemy, until the second he lays his eyes upon the enemy. And when he does, he sees it and is almost trapped by 80,000 cavalry of the Xiongnu. Just like that. The first thing. Walks up, gets the field of the battle, and is almost surrounded. But Wei Qing immediately realizes what's happening. Probably says something vulgar under his breath about how, well, great, we gave the teenager all of our best stuff and cavalry to allegedly face this Xiongnu cavalry, and now it's all up to me? Oh, and the Xiongnu live around here again. So they are, for all intents and purposes, rested and ready for a fight. I mean, they're ready to ambush these guys. The Han, on the other hand, have been marching nonstop for 500 miles. So yeah, everything that could go against Wei Qing has gone against Wei Qing. The Xiongnu see this weak and tired Han army. I mean, they see them, literally and immediately throw a 10,000-man cavalry charge down at the beleaguered Han. And these aren't random. They're sending the vanguard of their cavalry. So Wei Qing immediately realizes what's going on. 
and has to take defensive measures. He ordered his troops and all their wagons to create a sort of wugang of chariots. It's sort of a ring formation, and it creates a mobile fortress that allows for his infantrymen and crossbowmen and archers to remain protected from these, you know, this cavalry charge. I mean, try to stand in front of a charging horse, let alone 10,000 of them. You're not going to stand there much longer. You'll be cut down. So he quickly takes this chariot force, and he allowed the Han troops to, you know, with this, to be able to use their weapons. You know, they have these ranged weapons, these crossbows, these archers, these uh, thrown objects. They're able to use them now. And he also takes a 5,000 or so man cavalry force and deploys them to reinforce and eradicate any Xiongnu forces that somehow manage to get within this sort of ring of chariots. So if they get in, those, there's 5,000 to mop up the rest because while 10,000 is more than the 5,000 of the Han, the 5,000 are fighting behind a fortress. So the few that get through the fortress, you know, the chariots, these 5,000 would then outnumber them and would kill anyone that got inside. And this tactic worked, at least, you know, in stopping a full-on defeat right at the onset. So the Xiongnu were unable to get inside of the army's lines, which is incredible. I mean, they were this close to just surrounding and killing the Han, but Wei Qing thought fast. And the battle began to turn into a stalemate. And neither side was making any significant, you know, gain. No one was really losing, but no one was gaining. They're all kind of standing there trying to break through this fortress, and the Han are trying to realize, okay, how do we do this? We're outarmed, we're tired, we're in a defensive position in their territory. How in the world are we going to win this? And this is why it's an amazing story. Because at dusk, a sandstorm came, literally. And Wei Qing realizes, okay, there's a sandstorm. And he uses the advantage of this, I mean, confusion surrounding the sandstorm. And he uses this confusion to make a roll of the dice. You know, he's putting it all on black. They're confused. There's a sandstorm. There's no order. And he sends out his main force. The outnumbered and lower quality Han cavalry was able to use the sandstorm as cover. I mean, they were able to move around without being really detected, and they were able to encircle the Chan Yu's army from both flanks, both sides. The Xiongnu's lines were surrounded. They were overwhelmed. And imagine thinking that, like, we have this battle won, but it's sort of a stalemate, a sandstorm comes, and all of a sudden the enemy's at both of your sides. Oh, and this is darkness. It's dusk. I mean, imagine the visuals. I mean, this is Lord of the Rings stuff. It's a sandstorm. It's dark. You can't see anything. And all of a sudden, the Han come from both sides. They're killing you in the dark. Sand's hitting your face. You can barely open your eyes. And it is just chaos. The Chan Yu realizes that in the flip of a sandstorm, they were going to be completely overrun. And the Chan Yu bails. He escapes with only a few hundred men and leaves, gets out of Dodge. But he only took a few hundred. Wei Qing and the Han were able to kill over 19,000 of the Xiongnu on the battlefield. And just like Huo Chubing, they pursued them. And in this case, for more than 100 miles to the Kangai Mountains. And again, it'll be on the website. 
where they then besieged and then captured the fortress of Jiaoxin, located in the Orkhan Valley. So, Wei Qing then spends the next day or so regrouping and trying to figure out what just happened, and the Han forces begin to burn any stronghold to the ground before returning victorious. Now, what about that flanking maneuver, the worthless one done by the bad omen Li Guang? Well, they got lost in the desert. So not only did Wei Qing not have the best forces, that jinxed general got lost in the desert. All of his men didn't participate. They get there, but after the battle's over, and they join them on the way home. So, and this is the brutal part, and while the Han Dynasty is still much more understanding than the Qing Dynasty, Li Guang is summoned for a court-martial for failing to accomplish orders and putting the battle strategy at risk. So, you know, Li Guang then, realizing that his time was up, committed suicide. And that's just a weird, interesting story here. He's sent on this mindless flanking maneuver just because he's going to jinx the enemy, or jinx themselves, and then he doesn't make the battle because he's on these mindless orders, and then he's court-martialed for not making the battle. And then kills himself out of shame, you know, in a way to preserve his honor. And I said that this would be close enough to a decisive battle. This was not the end of the Xiongnu. They're going to keep popping up a little bit. But the fact is, these thousands of casualties, thousands of miles of lost land, lost nobles, lost everything, the Xiongnu were never going to recover. It was done. The Chanyu were so badly defeated that they're, they're never going to recover from this. They will never be the Xiongnu that went into this war. They're done. The leader, the Chanyu, is gone for 10 days. Yes, the ancient world, but people presume he's dead. And they begin installing a whole new leader. I mean, they literally are just like, oh man, well, it's over. We got to get a new leader. They are in the process of getting a new one in, and then the old one comes back. So the, the Xiongnu are just in tatters. They've lost whole tribes. They've lost princes, lords. The Chanyu is now in a confusing mess. Their army is decimated. And this is a confederacy that is based on a very thin alliance amongst a bunch of tribes that sometimes don't like each other. The Xiongnu also, on top of this, lose all that land. And they're forced to retreat further north into, like, Siberia because their threat to the Han Dynasty was gone. The Han Dynasty just moved their borders north. And this is where I'm going to give a little surprise. I know I haven't been producing that much. As you know, I've been busy. But when the Xiongnu go north, the steppe is already almost inhospitable. But when you're in Siberia, you can't be there for that long, supporting that many people. And the theory goes that a branch of these retreating Xiongnu eventually realized that, you know what, we can't stay here and we can't keep going further north. But you can go into the Arctic. So they start going west. And the Xiongnu are still powerful, you know, the tribe by themselves. They're not going to run into any big society. And eventually, over the course of 100 plus to 400 years, they start snowballing and snowballing west and west and west. They become sort of a, their own, this little branch becomes its own conglomerate. And they show up in Europe 
and are known as the Huns. Because the Han Dynasty pushed the Xiongnu and destroyed them so thoroughly that they had to go into Siberia, some felt it necessary to go west. While Rome and China haven't really met each other yet, don't even know each other exist, these events are happening, these dominoes, these strings being pulled are happening hundreds of years before. And that's why I love history. I mean, look, the facts aren't all there. There was a lot of DNA evidence to back up that claim, though. Of, you know, they went through people who were shown new, you know, some went to India, some stayed in China, some did a bunch of other things. Matching the DNA of the two, there is strong evidence. And the story makes sense, because where else did the, the Huns come from? But anyway... The Han did not get out of this without being hurt. I know I've sort of given this narrative that the Han dynasty was absolutely dominant in this war. And they were in a sense. But in the 10 years of this war, you know, 119 BC is the end and 129 was about the beginning. The Han lost about 80% of all their horses. All of the traveling, the combat, the starvation, the disease, the perils of ancient war. The Han Dynasty lose a lot. I mean, it was an existential threat, yes. But the Han Dynasty are not out of this unscathed. They're not America after World War I becoming a financial hub and taking over all the lost pieces of the rest of the world. No. The Han had to invest and sacrifice for this victory. And it's not the end of the war. The Xiongnu are still going to, you know, raid and stuff. And they're going to keep doing that until about 89 BC. But it's going to be piecemeal stuff. I mean, a couple bands come across the border here are crushed. A couple bands come over there are crushed. Formal, massive, hundreds of thousands of soldiers on the battlefield. That stuff is done. On top of that, though, the Han Dynasty, obviously, with this war, as we know, what does war lead to? It leads to taxes. So the Han Dynasty had to bite the bullet and increase taxes on everyone, and it obviously fell in the ancient time on the peasants. And we do know that the registered population, the, the Han Dynasty is taking censuses. It's really interesting. And we're going to have an episode on that soon because we've been dealing with the Xiongnu in this war, but now it's time to recheck in, understand what they're doing. They're advancing technology, they're advancing trade, and after this war, it's time to really get into that. But the high taxes and famine that ended up happening, they had to fund this military, feed this military, move this military, and that cost a lot of money. That plus a small-grade famine turned into a population decrease, and a notable one in the Han Dynasty. The Han Dynasty didn't do this without sacrificing. But the Xiongnu obviously suffered the worst. The Han are going to recover. It was a big investment, but it's going to pay off. The Xiongnu, with their military losses, they're done. They lost so many men just due to the deaths from the war and, you know, the obvious perils, you know, famine, disease. The Xiongnu then go out and lost millions of their livestock, which is essentially how they eat. And the Han Dynasty took them. They didn't kill them. They took the cat. We know this. They took the livestock. So the Xiongnu were out hundreds of thousands of people. They are out their main food source in the millions. Furthermore, they lose all of the grassland that they were in. You can't do anything in the Gobi Desert or Siberia. I've told you that. 
You could also guess that. I'm sorry. That sounded aggressive. But the Xiongnu have no food. They have way less people. And now they're forced to survive in the Gobi Desert in Siberia. No fertile grasslands, nothing. So the Xiongnu that are left realize that they're going to have to uh, settle for peace. Now, I mentioned this, that the Xiongnu never really go away. Because there's, there's about a peace for about seven years, but then in 112 BC, at Wu Yuan, the Xiongnu make another raid. But it's never happening again. The raids are done, and they eventually break into different branches about 100 years later. And now the southern branch of the Xiongnu, which were on the border of the Han Dynasty they're going to eventually be integrated and made subordinate to the Han Dynasty. They're going to be brought into the fold. And with being brought into the fold, they're going to go after the northern branch. So with that, more tribes begin to break off. The confederation is done. The southern Xiongnu tribes sort of just kind of disintegrate and fall into the Han Dynasty's, you know, sphere of influence. And the northern ones are just picked apart little by little. The Wuhan and Xianbei tribes, other non-Xiongnu, they begin to get independence from the Xiongnu. The northern tribes begin to break away entirely. And it's those last fleeing northern branches, the most north. And it's those that survive and are not integrated or gain independence that hold on, that eventually will evacuate and become the ancestors to the Huns. And now, as we know, the Huns would eventually, in time, be one of the main reasons or the accelerants to the destruction and dissolution of the Western Roman Empire. It's incredible. But yeah, short episode, I know, not our longest one. And I'll give this at the end of the war. It's confusing, of course. And you should go check out the website to see the maps. But the Han Dynasty is not remembered as one of the greatest civilizations of all human history for nothing. This conflict shows the amount of logistical and economic and organizational power that this dynasty had. To go after a group of people that could just vanish into the vastness of Earth, the Han Dynasty went out and beat them. It was hard. They lost a lot. But they didn't lose that much that made them lose. And so later this week, I'm going to release an episode that I already made. Um, for a history class at Duke, my final was to make a podcast. And it's way better than writing an essay, trust me. So I made this podcast, and it was about ancient Rome, because that was what the class was about. And it's about the Huns. So I think it'd be a perfect time to sort of try out a, you know, extra episode kind of deal. Sort of supplemental, if, you know, I may. So, next week, and I mean that, next week, we're going to dive into the Han Dynasty. We're going to see where we're at. Emperor Wu is not going to last forever. The Han Dynasty has a lot that's going to happen, and we're going to be there to watch it. So, I cannot wait. I hope the Han Xiongnu War was as exciting for you as it was for me. So, be sure to donate, check out the website, really do check out the website, and rate and subscribe to the show. And honestly, send me emails. A bunch of you did. I'm getting back to you all right now. But I love talking to you guys about anything. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you all next week on the history of China. <laughs>